0: Good morning, everyone. Um, What a privilege it is today to read God's Word for you all. Take a moment to get your Bibles, your phones, your iPads, whatever it is, click, flip, open. Um, We're going to be reading Mark uh, chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. So I'll just give you a moment um, to find that. If not, it is on the screen. Mark chapter 6, starting at 14. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others replied, he is Elijah. And still, others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples went and took his body and laid it in the tomb. Let's just take a moment to pray before we move into the sermon. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity it is to open your Word and read it freely. Lord, we pray as Sam comes forward now that the words that I have just read that come from you will be translated in a way that Sam is able to give a message that we can hear clearly from you and apply to our lives. Lord, we ask that you give us the ears and the heart to hear right now as we move into our sermon. Amen.
1: Thank you, Tim. So the title of our sermon today is simply, The Beheading of John the Baptist, Tragedy or Triumph. It is certainly, in a sense, a sensational story. This is the kind of story that would make headlines today. And if you noticed, we kind of had an abrupt beginning where it just begins with King Herod, but notice that we've been working our way each week through the Gospel of Mark. And where we left off last week was Jesus' sending out of the twelve. And so on the heels of the sending out of the twelve, we see that uh, as Jesus' uh, disciples are sent out two by two, and they're ministering in the towns around Galilee, that Herod, who is the, uh, the leader, or what we call the tetrarch of Galilee, begins to hear about this mission. Uh, because it caused no little stir. You have men going about and preaching and teaching in Jesus' name and performing miracles, performing healings and casting out demons. And so this is where we have a very abrupt beginning. It says, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. And that's how we begin. Now, what do we want to do with this text this morning is to take a look at three specific things. uh, when, we, when we take a look at this passage, and, and the first thing that we, we want to take a look at is this idea of Jesus identity. Give me one second to pull up my sermon. And in verses 14 to 15, we really see what I want to just call the great debate. If you want to take a look at, uh, as we look at this story, by the way, this is the only full story in Mark that we have of anybody else apart from Jesus. Um, we spend quite a few verses here, and Mark wants us to understand the, uh, the, the conclusion of John the Baptist's ministry. We, we hear about John the Baptist in, in Mark chapter 1, uh, and now we see the conclusion of his life in ministry. And so... This story set, in a sense, wraps up John's life as we are also learning about Jesus' ministry. So verses 14 to 15 is the first thing we're going to take a look at. We're going to take a look at the great debate, what is the identity of this Jesus? And this has been something, as you've studied with us week to week, Mark continually is unraveling, one piece at a time. The second thing is we're really just going to dive into the story, kind of take a case study, and we're going to do that by looking at the four main characters which we're going to take a look at Herod. We're going to take a look at um, his, his wife, uh, Herodias. And by the way, Tim and I were just talking. We have multiple nationalities, and we have multiple pronunciations. Tim said, which is the right one? I said, the right one is where you come from. How do you pronounce it? Read. So for, for Tim and our fellow Australians, it's Herodias. I grew up with Herodias. You might have a third pronunciation. Uh, we're all talking about the same lady, and don't worry, your pronunciation doesn't have to match mine. Uh, this is, it, it doesn't, it's not infallible, but we have infallible scriptures. Uh, and so Herod's wife, the one we're talking about, Herodias, that's the one. Uh, we're going to take a look at her, their daughter, Salome, and then we're going to take a look at John the Baptist. And I simply want to ask, who are they? What role do they play? So the second part of our sermon today, we're just going to look at the main characters, and we're going to see how the story unfolds. The last part of our sermon today, I want to take a look and go into, was this a tragedy or triumph? Whenever we come to God's word, we want to ask the question as we read it, like, so what? So what is the significance? Or what does it mean? Or why does it matter? And so we want to ask this question when we come to the story of John the Baptist and his beheading, so what? What does it mean? What is its significance? we want to really take a look at, is this a tragedy Is this a triumph? That's where we're going to end today. And we're going to kind of look at how should we view this through a scriptural lens. So let's begin in verses 14 to 15. And let's take a look at this great debate, the identity of Jesus. So big picture, pulling back kind of the zoom lens that's looking at only John the Baptist and his beheading in chapter 6. I want to pull back and take a look at big picture. The big picture is that Mark is continually to unfold Jesus' identity. And specifically, what we have is after Jesus has sent out his disciples, and after they've gone out two by two, that we see this debate, this continuing debate, by uh, the, the crowds who are hearing him. And you've seen this debate take many forms. But today, we see three things. In verse 14, some people say, he's John the Baptist. Verse 15, some people say he's Elijah. And lastly, some people just say he's a prophet. One thing that we we see Mark doing, and everyone concurs, this is some type of prophet. But we're not exactly sure how he fits in. And the reason they're having this debate, and you think, haven't we already discussed this? Well, this topic is raging the entire time Jesus ministers. And it ebbs and flows. And... One of the things that the crowds are saying is, uh, the first thing, verse 14, we see that he is held to be John the Baptist. Now, we know that John the Baptist, in this account, uh, has, is beheaded. And we see that Herod's immediate fear, knowing that he's taken the life of John, it, it's almost like his worst fear come true, right? He hears about Jesus sending out the twelve, and he hears that something miraculous happened. Not only is Jesus performing miracles, but these men he sent out to preach in his name in villages all over Galilee are able to heal in the very same way. And so some people are saying, hey, this is John the Baptist. Herod tried to kill him. But God has somehow resurrected him and and Herod himself actually believes this. Why? Because he's terrified. He's terrified that this man I just allowed to be killed has risen from the dead. There are some who are saying it's Elijah. And if you think, well, why, why is are some people saying this is Elijah? Well, uh, we know that Elijah was a prophet. If you go back to uh, 1 Kings uh, uh, chapter 17 through uh, Kings, 2 Kings chapter 1. It's all the ministry of Elijah. And we know that Elijah was associated with many mighty miracles. And we also know that Malachi, so Malachi, if you look at Old Testament, Malachi is the last book or the last prophet in the Old Testament. And Malachi specifically mentions that Elijah will come and visit again. Uh, and so many people are saying, well, this is Elijah. He's performing miracles like Elijah. It's mighty miracles. And some people are saying, and, and Malachi told us to be looking forward to uh, a, a return. And then people didn't know exactly what, how, how does this happen. Is, is Elijah himself coming? Is someone like Elijah coming? So some people were saying, putting two and two together, and saying, no, this is the second coming. We, we, we were told to look for Elijah. Uh, and, and remember, the, the people are constantly looking to connect the dots, all the way going back to Genesis, of there's going to be one who conquers or, or whose foot steps on the serpent's head. We know that there's one who's promised, who's going to come from David's line. We know that there's uh, one who's promised that will come and be the Messiah. We know that Daniel is going to prophesy that one will come and sit on the throne who will rule forever. We're told from Malachi to be looking for a second coming of Elijah. And so people are constantly looking to put the pieces together. So some are saying this is Elijah. And others are just saying, we're not sure, but this is a prophet. We have seen prophets before, and God has sent prophets, and This Jesus seems like one of the prophets long ago. We're not saying he's Elijah. Here's one thing we know. He's a prophet of God. Because no one could do what he does. Now, so this is just bringing us up in the argument. uh, Or or, uh, Mark is constantly revealing to us who are the people saying Jesus is. How are they wrestling with his ministry? And how are they personally uh, believing or receiving Jesus? Now... So that's the first part of what this story does. It moves the narrative forward, still struggling with who Jesus is. Let's dive in now to these four characters. And I want to take a look at who they are, and I want to take a look at the part to play. Now, the first person we have is Herod Antipas. Now, Herod, technically, it says King Herod in this account, but just to give you an idea... Herod is not a king; he probably took the name of a king. But Herod is what we call a tetrarch. And if that's unfamiliar to you, don't worry; it was to me. I had to look it up and say, "What is a tetrarch?" A tetrarch is one of four leaders governing an area. So at this time, Rome is the one who is in control. Rome has this uh, this pattern of allowing those that they conquered to raise up rulers for themselves, and so you would have locals who would rule and reign and collect taxes and basically keep things in order for the Romans. So was it a position of power? Yes. Was it a king? By no means. Herod was one of four people ruling the area that uh, we would consider ancient Israel. And Herod specifically was overseeing the area of Galilee, and we know that this is the main area that Jesus was ministering. And so Herod, in a sense, has a very unique view to all that Jesus is doing because everything that is unfolding, all that's taking place uh, in, in Herod's region where Jesus is ministering, where the very area and the very cities where the disciples were sent out, that's all Herod's territory. So he is a tetrarch. Now, uh, and, and Herod ruled from about 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. So it was, the, it was uh, exactly the time of basically around Jesus' birth, and up and through his death, a little bit beyond his death. Now, there's a lot of Herods in the New Testament, just to clarify. Herod the Great, you know the, the famous story about when Jesus was born, and the wise men go to the king. That's This Herod's father, oftentimes it's called Herod the Great. And Herod, to be differentiated, was called Herod Antipas. And so his father was the one who was over Jerusalem, over Judea. When Jesus was born, his father was the one who saw the wise men and said, hey, when, when you find him, come back and tell me. I want to worship him too. And his plan was just a ruse. And when the, the wise men didn't come back, he issued a decree, kill all of the young boys in the area. Uh, and so this is his father. Now, something else just about Herod Antipas's father, and this will... A kind of play until today, Herod the Great was a wicked, wicked, wicked man. He had 10 wives, he had 15 children. He even killed one of his wives just to eliminate uh, one, her as a, a, a possible threat, but also her children. He killed some of his own sons so that he, they wouldn't have any kind of rivalry with him for his authority. You see, there's a lot of perversity uh, in in the taking of ten wives. One, it was political. He was constantly shoring up his authority by taking political marriages. But one, the other reality was just it was just sensual and sexual. Herod took what he wanted, and he didn't care. And so this is the father of Herod Antipas. Now, that's a little bit of background of who Herod was. I want to tell you what he did in the story, and this is going to be rapid fire. In verse 14, Herod hears about Jesus and he hears about the mission of the disciples and he hears about the miracles done. He was a first-hand witness in in a sense. He heard all about what was taking place in his area. In verse 16, he thought that this John the Baptist whom he beheaded, he feared that he was raised from the dead. In verse 17, he gave specific orders for John to be arrested and imprisoned. In verse 20... He feared John, and he protected him because he knew him to be a righteous and holy man. Protected him from whom? We'll get to that in just a second. It's from his wife who wanted him killed. In verse 20, we see that he was perplexed by John, but he liked to hear him. Puzzled would be another way. Uh, to, to kind of fill in the gap, when we first hear about John the Baptist and his ministry, it's Mark one fourteen. We don't hear about John the Baptist until this passage. It's been about a year John has been in prison. Uh, it kind of reminds me of Paul. Remember when Paul was in prison? Uh, and he, he was in prison for about a year, and I think, it was, was it Festus, uh, who, who constantly wanted to, uh, him to come and just speak. He was fascinated by hearing him. And so uh, we see that Herod was fascinated by John because he spoke the truth. Uh, and he spoke about the kingdom. And it seems like Herod went and listened to him often, or or he called John to himself. And he asked him, tell me about the kingdom again. Or he asked him to explain uh, the Old Testament, or he asked him to explain maybe this Jesus. Who is this guy? Who is this guy going out and preaching? Tell me about him. Uh, And so we know that he was fascinated, but I think he was also, he met a man who actually lived out his convictions. And if there was anything that Herod wasn't, he was a man with no spine. He was a man who basically, uh, and and I think we see this oftentimes in today's world, the politicians who will do anything that they believe keeps them in office or gets them elected. Herod was a man who didn't live out convictions. Herod was a man who just did everything he could in his power to keep what he had. And I think he was fascinated by someone who was the exact opposite of him. A man who literally spoke his mind and spoke the truth and made no apologies. Literally, why he's in prison with the very man whose wife wants him dead and who had the ability to kill him. And John keeps coming up. He keeps sharing about the kingdom, and he keeps saying the same thing. You can't have your brother's wife. Now, in verse 21, we know that Herod hosted a great birthday party uh, for high-ranking officials, for military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Uh, from what we can see, this is basically, a, in a sense, like a stag party. This is a male-only party. Uh, and it's going to get raucous, and it's going to get crazy, and it's going to end with female entertainment. Uh, And we kind of get a a picture of what is life like behind the scenes, kind of like this. In verse 22, he allows his very own stepdaughter to be the evening entertainment for the guests, and we'll get to more of that uh, when we talk about Salome. In verse 22, we see his pride, and we see that he... He makes a crazy oath, and he offers up to half his kingdom. By the way, this is an idiom. It basically means, say, ask anything you want, I'll give it. And it's, it's a show of wealth. Uh, we also see in the story of Esther, the very same quote used, and where uh, the king is, is pleased by Esther, and he, he says, ask anything you want up to half my kingdom. It's just an idiom. He doesn't actually mean he'll give her half his kingdom. But it's basically saying, I'm very pleased, ask anything you want. And what he's thinking is, it'll be monetary, she might want a horse, she might want a chariot. It's something that's going to show my absolute wealth, and I'm going to give it to you in front of my guests. He had no idea what she'd ask for. In verse 26, we see his cowardice, and we see his pride as he chooses to keep his oath. And he refuses to deny the request that Salome and her mother Herodias had made for John the Baptist's head. And he lets an innocent man die right in front of his guests. Now, I want to take a look at Herodias. Who is she? What role does she play? Herodias is the daughter of Aretas, who was actually the king of Arabia. And she's also the granddaughter of Herod the Great. And this is where the story starts to get a little bit off track. Remember I said Herod had 10 wives and 14 children? Well, Uh, Herodias was one of the the granddaughters of Herod the Great. And so that's where this story begins to take a little bit of a turn. So Herodias is coming. Uh, Obviously, she was raised in a palace, and this is her life. And she's going to marry into uh, more authority. Now, interestingly enough, Herodias is also the wife of Philip. Now, this is Herod Antipas' brother, Not full brother, not biological brother, remember? Ten wives. But it's actually his half-brother. And Herodias is originally married to Herod Antipas' brother, Philip. And when she and Herod Antipas met, so the story is, and this is not in the the scriptures. I looked this up. This is uh, in Josephus' history of the Jews is when Herod made a trip to Rome to do some official business, he stayed with his brother. He stayed with his brother, Philip. And he and his brother's wife, we can't tell what the details. What we can tell is afterwards, they got together. They both divorced their spouses, and they both decided, we will gladly throw away our marriages and marry one another. And so Herodias divorced Philip, Herod divorced his wife, and these two got together, and she moved from Rome to Galilee. And this is, you kind of get the background, and this happened during the time of Jesus, and it happened during the time of John the Baptist. As you can imagine, this was news. Uh, This was was the kind of news that everybody talked about. It was scandalous. Uh, And you also see some of the, the, the rumors that were also true, Of this intermarrying between this family and 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 the scandal of what is taking place. Now, what role does Herodias play? Well, I love the the, how the NIV says she nursed a grudge against John the Baptist and she wanted him dead. The role that she plays, John the Baptist is specifically spoken out about this marriage, this scandalous marriage between Herod Antipas who took his brother's wife, and Herodias, who left her first husband, Herod's brother, and now they're living together, openly, without shame. In verse 21, we're told that she waits for the opportune time to have John killed, and she schemed using her own daughter as an offering to her husband for his dinner entertainment. In verse 24, we know that she asked for the head of John the Baptist. So that's Herodias, and that's the role that she plays in this text. Let's take a look at two more. Let's take a look at Salome, then we'll take a look at John the Baptist, and we're going to talk about, is this a tragedy? Is this a triumph? Salome, what role does she play? Well, she's the daughter of Philip and Herodias. She's technically the great-granddaughter of Herod the Great, and she's the granddaughter of Aretas. She technically is the stepdaughter of Herod Antipas at the same time as niece. If you can believe that. But most importantly, who Salome is, is she's a girl whose life has been completely turned upside down. Her mother has just divorced her father. He's taken, she's taken a husband who's actually her father's brother. Her Uncle is now her stepfather, and she's been moved, and just think of today, we think of as an international crowd, her entire life has been been basically grabbed from the roots, ripped up, and replanted in another palace, in another place, where she's now forced to live this existence, where my uncle is now my stepfather, and my mother has left my father, and she's picked up, she has to basically pick up the pieces, and figure out what is my life all about? Who is my father? Who actually loves me? And so this is who Salome. What role does she play? Verse 22, she danced and performed for her stepfather's birthday and his male guests. Verse 22, she danced the dance of her life. It says that they were greatly pleased. If if, if this was her time to shine, man, she performed in a way where the men were amazed and astonished. In verse 23, she was she was given an oath by Herod, her stepfather and uncle. He says, ask you whatever you wish, or ask me whatever you wish, I'll give it to you. In verse 24, she seeks her mother's advice. and verse 25, she runs back in immediately and she asks for John's head on a platter. And she does her mother's bidding, taking the life of John the Baptist. So this is Salome. Now, one thing I just want to mention, and it's really important for you to get before we move on. Salome dancing... would have been absolutely culturally unacceptable. She is the daughter of royalty. Twice over, first the daughter of, of Herod and Herodias. Both of her grandfathers were, in a sense, kings. And she has been invited not only to learn the arts that are reserved for basically only female prostitutes, but she's invited to perform for her stepfather, for her uncle, at the bidding of her mother in front of these men and paraded as, in a a sense, a sexual display for men's desires and pleasure. And in no way is this any way acceptable in the culture. You see the depravity of what is taking place, and you really need to understand this. Here is a young girl, we don't know the age, but we're assuming this is a teenage girl, And what she has been invited, the dream that she's been invited to pursue in the midst of this mixed up, messed up world she's living in, of a mother divorcing her father and marrying his brother, is to use her beauty for the pure pleasure of pleasing men and dancing for them. Uh, It's a tragedy. Lastly, let's look at John the Baptist. John the Baptist, you know the story well, but just as a reminder, John the Baptist, was, uh, his birth was announced to Zechariah. Zechariah, his father, was a priest. He was ministering before the Lord. He was in the temple, and an angel appears and tells of a miraculous birth that is going to take place. That birth was to Zechariah and Elizabeth. It was going to be in their old age. She's past the age of childbearing. And they, they had prayed for years for the, 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 the birth or the gift of a child. And John the Baptist is that answer. He's a mighty prophet before God. He's going to be great before the Lord. He's the forerunner of Jesus. And that basically meant he prepared the way for Jesus. And he pointed to Jesus. He was uniquely set apart by God for a very specific mission. And as a sign of his calling, he was to stay away from wine and alcohol. John was unique. Talk about a rugged, righteous man. Nobody was like John. Uh, John was a man's man, uh, and, and he, was, he was a rugged prophet. He lived out in the desert. He wore camel's hair. He ate locusts, and he ate wild honey. Uh, and he preached about sin. I mean, talk about a guy who would, who, would, who would cut a stark contrast to what's taking place in Herod and in his world. Versus, here is John, a man completely set apart from God. In fact, we're told that the Holy Spirit empowers John even from the womb. He preached repentance for sin. He preached against unrighteousness. And in Matthew 11, eleven we're told, it says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And then we have a qualifier. He says, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Don't forget that second part, but... Up until this point in time, what, we're, what Jesus is testifying is nobody born of woman has been greater than John the Baptist. This is the guy we're talking about. This is the guy who's going to get beheaded. This is the guy who's going to suffer this fate on a whim of Herod. By the way, I don't know if you connected dots, but John the Baptist is also Jesus' cousin. So he's not just a prophet. John and Jesus were cousins. Uh, so, what did John do? It's very simple. In verse 18, we're told, that he speaks the truth about Herod's scandalous marriage. And he says, it was, it's not lawful for you, for you to have your brother's wife. And because of it, he's put in prison. Now, where does that come from? It comes from specifically two places. One is Leviticus 18.16. The other is Leviticus 20.21. 20, I'll read you 20.21. 20, it says, if a man marries his brother's wife, it's an act of impurity. He has dishonored his brother, and they will be childless. So John the Baptist specifically spoke out against this unrighteousness. That was his job. Not only was he prepared a way for Jesus, but he spoke against sin. Now, specifically what else he did in verse 20, we're told that he preached about the kingdom to Herod. This is where I was saying Herod was puzzled. Herod loved to come and listen to John. And this is more my reading into the text, but I would just say in verse 20... John's in prison for a year. I don't don't think it is too far removed to say that Herod didn't come to him and say, John, here's the deal. I respect you, and I know you're a godly guy. Here's what I'm asking. If you simply just stop preaching about the fact that I've married my brother's wife, if you stop really going out and, uh, and sharing with everybody about the fact that this is condemned by God and I should be judged, I'll be glad to let you go. In fact, my wife wants you dead. I don't want you dead. A year he sits in prison. Now, once again, that's my theological imagination. That's not in the text, but I would say the reality is that there's probably a conversation that just came about and said, John, if you just don't do this one thing, preach about Jesus, preach about the Messiah, preach about the kingdom, but just leave me, my wife, out of it. Can you do that? And John gladly stays in prison. This is what I know. What I know is John stayed in there for a year. All right, so we set up the characters. Now I simply want to ask this question. Here's how we have to end. Because this is a story that makes us pause and think. think, How does this story further the story of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? And the question we want to ask is, is this a tragedy or is this a triumph? How would we define what happened? Earlier I said, whenever we read a passage, and this should be the question on your mind, but it's also the questions I ask myself when I preach, is why does this matter? So what? So John was beheaded, so what? And it invites us, I believe, to say, okay, what was the tragedy and what was the triumph? And here's what I want to share. The tragedy is not John the Baptist losing his head. The tragedy in this story is not John being beheaded. The tragedy that we see in front of us was Herod and his family. And I want to share you three specific things that I see as a tragedy. And then we're going to take a look and and I'm going to share three reasons why I see John's story as a triumph. And I think scripture invites this. Because in the upside uh, down world of following the gospel... God is playing by a completely different set of rules. There's different kingdoms that they're building. Our world is building one kingdom that is temporal. And God is building another that is eternal. And you're going to see that Herod and his family are living for a different temporal kingdom than John is living. And John's kingdom can't be taken from him. We see him triumphing and and crossing the finish line in faith. And we see... A family living out a terrible tragedy of buying in to building a kingdom in the here and now. So, the first tragedy I want us to see is this. I want us to see the tragedy of the true portrayal of life at the top. Because this story, in an unvarnished way, actually just tells us, here is what was taking place in the palace. And folks, this isn't the end of it. This is just a glimpse You don't think Herod killed other men? He killed his own wife, or his his father killed his own wife and his own sons. This is an unvarnished, untouched up photo of life in the palace. And it's sickening, and it's scandalous, and it's perverse. If you want to use a colloquial term, it's messed up. That mess that is messed up. So we see a view from the top. And honestly, the reality is, this isn't just Herod. If you look at the perversion at the top of governments today, it's the same story. The world really hasn't changed. The same, the same excess, the same pride, the same sexual liberties, the same plotting, the same scheming, the abuses of power. Herod was given his power. And we all know that power only, and authority only comes from God, and it's to be used for others' good. We see a complete abuse of power. We see a tragic story, a a tragic story of marriage, which God designed for us to experience and to experience the beauty of covenant commitment. Man, we see that torn to shreds and thrown out in favor of these political dalliances and sexual promiscuity that they think is going to meet their needs. We see a messed up picture, a perverse picture of what parenting should look like. Of, of a father taking advantage of a stepdaughter and a mother plotting and scheming and using her own daughter to get at or her husband who won't take the life of John the Baptist, and she finds a back door to use her daughter's beauty and to allow her to do something that should, no parent should ever allow their daughter to do, which is to become just an object of desire and sexual passion. That's the tragedy. The tragedy is that this picture is truly the world as it is. The tragedy is that the world at the top, at the place where, we, if, if we were to take evolution and say, this is what evolution produces, that at the top, at the top of the learning, Herod had access to the funds, Herod had access to the education. All of the men that he was with, they were the military commanders, they were the leading leaders of Galilee. At the top, it's more perverse than we ever could think. The world tells us that evolution, we're constantly moving, we're constantly becoming better. Let me just pull back the curtain and say, it is absolutely horrendous, the sin. Not only in the palace, but it's in our houses too. This story highlights the vanity of earthly power. It highlights the vanity of wealth. It highlights the, the scheming and the politics that are a part of life. And it highlights that those who seem to be above the law, like Herod, ultimately Will one day face God for the life they lived and the sins they've committed. And in fact, one of the things that, like, as we grow up, we often grow up thinking, "I wish I had," you know, like, "I wish I had that life." Right? You look at the person who has more; they have the car, or they have the nicer house, or they have the better job. We can't get any higher in this area than than King Herod and his wife. And let me just expose the lie that if you think right next door, if you only had what your neighbors had, you'd finally be happy. Herod had a horrendously unsatisfying life. He had an unsatisfying marriage. He and his wife are scheming and plotting against each other. He was an unsatisfied parent taking advantage of his stepdaughter for his and his guest's sexual pleasure. I won't tell you the rest of the story, but he's going to have an unsatisfying end. Herod's going to be kicked out of this territory because he's so inept, and he's exiled to go live out his, his life uh, in what modern day we call France. That's the tragedy. The second tragedy that I see is this: it's the fulfillment of a parable that we saw just a few weeks ago in the parable of the soils. In Matthew 4, 18 and 19, it's talking about how the, the, the seed, the, the good news... Jesus is sowing sometimes it would fall on seed or, or excuse me ground and and that thorns would grow up and it called those thorns the worries of life the deceitfulness of wealth and desire of things and how it comes in and makes the word unfruitful Herod had Jesus ministering in his backyard and knew of what he's doing and he had John the Baptist in prison preaching to him personally and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for things completely made his heart hardened and his eyes blind to see and to hear. That's tragic. What's tragedy is we see the fulfillment of the parables, that this can happen, is that probably nobody had John as a, as a personal prophet, literally in prison, He can call it any time. Herod did. And it says he heard him often. He was fascinated by what john preached and he respected him it says he saw him as a holy man but even knowing all that he couldn't bring himself to believe the desire for wealth and the desire of things completely choked out the word and what's tragic is that our idols we don't rule over our el- uh, idols what we see is our idols rule over us herod was ruled by his desires that's the tragedy the tragedy of a life that he can have the goodness of the kingdom offered in front of him, but he can't choose it because he is a slave to his own idols. The third tragedy, I believe, is this. We haven't got to this in Mark, but I think this is a perfect fulfillment of exchanging our souls for possessing the temporal. In Mark 834 to 37, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world? And by the way, Herod had gained everything he could in his little region. He wasn't ever going to be the king of Rome. But Herod had it all. He had gained everything that he could. And what he couldn't gain, he took because <laughs> he wanted it. He wanted his brother's wife and he got her. But Herod got everything the world could offer, and he forfeited his soul. The tragedy is that in seeking to build our own kingdom, we could miss out on God's kingdom. That's the tragedy. The three tragedies, we see the portrayal of the world as it is, and it it is a scandalous, horrendous place when sin has its way. We see the fulfillment of the parables, and we see that we can exchange the temporal in building a kingdom now for the eternal. That's the tragedy of this story. Let's talk about the triumph. Why would we call John's horrific murder, a murder committed on a whim of a terrible oath and the pride and the arrogance of a king who wouldn't admit he was wrong? Why would we call this a triumph? What I would propose to you is just like Jesus and just as I would say, the fulfillment of or, or uh, when we look at mark eight thirty four to thirty seven where Jesus says the front end of discipleship means laying down your life is that John already considered his life gone, he gave it to the Lord. John had already laid his life down, he understood to to follow now. John was was not a disciple of Jesus, but we understand when we look at John's mission, John gave himself completely to God and completely to his calling. He had laid his life down. John couldn't lose what he had already given. They could take his life, but they could not take what God had given, which is his his eternal calling, his eternal soul, and his, his place in the eternal kingdom. And so the first reason... Why I don't believe that this is a story of a horrific murder, but rather the triumph of somebody understanding the calling and laying down their life at the front of their journey. The first is that John honored God by teaching the truth about sin. I think we live in a world where we actually don't really don't value truth. In fact, we wouldn't value truth to the point or I would say we often don't see in our world truth valued to the point where you would die over an obscure text in Leviticus that says, don't take your brother's wife. It's, it's just trivial. Why die over that? Why, I mean, that, that actually pulled John off the field. John was ministering in the deserts. What pulled him out of his mission and ministry was him telling the crowds that Herod, what Herod did was wrong. And if we use him, human wisdom, wouldn't you be sitting in that prison set, uh, cell Maybe after the first week you don't want to give in. Maybe after the first few months. Maybe after the first six months. But it probably crossed his mind. Maybe his disciples came and pleaded with him. John, just tell Herod you won't preach again in this way and you'll be free. And John refuses. One of the things I love about John was that he understood that valuing God's truth at any aspect is protecting God's honor and glory. Valuing the smallest of truths is significant because God's honor and glory is protected. God tells us the way to live, and he tells us the way that is right. And whatever God reveals, he reveals for our own good. And John stood up and he says, I will protect the honor of God. And here's what God has said. And I want to protect the sanctity of what marriage is about. You shouldn't have your brother's wife. And you can't make marriage into this thing. We, we toss it into the bin like trash, these commitments that we've made. John stands up for marriage, and he stands up for this truth, an obscure truth. But we learn the value of truth, and I would say it's a lesson we need to well learn, because just about every truth in the Christian faith is being challenged. And I promise you, where you're at, and in your friendships, or in your family, you're going to be pressed on do you really believe that that's true? And I believe John gives us a fantastic example to follow. That one of the reasons John's life was a triumph is that he stood for truth. The second thing I believe that John's life is a triumph is because John chose a year in prison instead of compromising the message. We've referred to this already. And I think understanding this helps us not feel sorry for John. If we think that John was murdered, you think incorrectly. Yes, the logistics are Herod made an oath, Herod kept that oath, and John's head was taken. But if you understand the reality that John could have been out of that prison at any moment, he simply denied the truth, he could have saved his life. John had the ability to keep his life or to give his life in his hands. John chose to give up his life and said, I'll take whatever comes. I'll take whatever comes from testifying to the truth. And he didn't compromise the entire year. The third thing I want to see is that John was faithful to God until the very end. The reason John's life was a triumph is that John, he loved God more than his own life. And the contrast was Herod loved himself. And he loved his own life more than the kingdom that was preached to him. He couldn't let go of it. We have this contrast of two men. And this should speak and kind of form our theology. Because one of the things that this story does, remember I asked, so what? One of the things that this story does is it challenges us to think of a God who allows his saints to suffer, to be persecuted, and to even die. Because God himself is the great treasure. And if our theology doesn't account for this, if our theology says there's no way a good God would let a man like John, who the scriptures say, the greatest man born of woman, to die. So if God could let a man like John die, that either says something about, God might be different than what we think he is, or his, what is truly glorious, what is truly a treasure is different. Our theology needs to change. Or we need to change. I want to close this morning by simply just asking, which perspective is the perspective that you walked in this morning? We looked at a terrible story, a beheading of John the Baptist. We looked at the characters, we looked at who they were, and we looked at what they did and what part they had to play. And we looked at whether this was a tragedy or triumph. And from a worldly perspective, John died tragically. He died a prisoner for over a year. He died the result of a prideful man making a rash promise and a scheming wife who wanted him destroyed. If we look at this from a kingdom perspective, from a faith perspective, John held on to his faith to the very end. He finished the race. He didn't compromise in the most difficult of circumstances. In the darkest days, in chains, in what what would have been the, uh, the high security prison for Herod. It was a prison in the desert. Without his disciples, without friendships, without his friends. But holding on to a God that he knew would not forsake him. John stayed faithful to the end, choosing to put his life in God's hands, knowing that God was his true treasure. What is your perspective this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these stories, and we thank you for how stories like this challenge us and our beliefs. We believe that this is a true story of a man called by God to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the kingdom. And we believe without a doubt that he suffered, uh, suffered a horrendous, a horrific beheading. But your word points us to more. And you invite us, Father, to believe that this was not a tragedy, but it was the reality that when our hearts begin to know and comprehend you for who you are, when we see your beauty, then we gladly give up our lives and we gladly give up building a kingdom here and we press on to obtain an inheritance that is incorruptible, that has been set aside in heaven for us. And so we praise you for the example of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus not only in his death or in his life, but also his death. Jesus would suffer the very same fate. We thank you for the many men and women who have come behind, who have also gladly embraced laying down their lives so that they may not let go of you. Father, we pray for you to speak to us and to our hearts through your word. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.